Ancestors on the wall, let the ghost chit chat. Ancestors on the wall, let the ghost chit chat. Ancestors on the wall, let the ghost chit chat. Ancestors on the wall, let the ghost chit chat. Sitting with the ghosts up in my house. Sitting with the ghosts and mouths are shut. Sitting with the ghosts, they speak through me. Sitting with the ghosts, they holler. Sitting with my ancestors up here, they telling me that I'm too smart to let anything worry me, to let anything get the best of me. We are boomer. Kinda pants, we are boomer. Hello folks, I hope everybody is doing well this morning, I hope everyone is staying warm and that you're fed a little bit or that your belly is not um, hungry and starving and <sighs> I hope that everybody has an opportunity to Think about one thing that they have gratitude for this morning. Think about one thing um, that they can potentially do better or work towards improving and not to hold that over your head or to lord it over yourself, but more so just an opportunity to check in once again with, you, with yourself. Today, I have an incredible episode for you. I had a lovely conversation with Anaya Lambert and Anaya uses she, they pronouns and Anaya is a first generation Canadian or an internal migrant and a descendant of the transatlantic enslavement trade. Her family immigrated from Guyana to Eastern Canada during the initiation of the Canadian Multicultural Policy in 1971, which resulted in an influx of Caribbean immigrants seeking a better life in Canada. Anaya's work involves historic, intergenerational, and personal trauma recovery, supporting queer, trans, Black, Indigenous people of color, in healing through land connection, food sovereignty, and offering anti-racism workshops to help Canadians embody healthy racial identities and reimagine equitable structures of power. Anaya is an educator, activist, and theater of the oppressed joker. Uh, Anaya is amazing um, and I really, really, really am grateful to have had the opportunity to meet her at a retreat that we went to and to have a real conversation about tarot um, and what alchemy means. And this episode is filled with different philosophies, understanding ways to really understand what alchemy means for folks in general, but primarily also for black folks to get a better understanding as to why um, we are or we were the subject of investigation and where that really is rooted from. So excited for y'all to listen and I definitely hope that you have a fantastic time listening to this episode. Take your time, digest it, you know, come back to it, but definitely enjoy. I love it. It's really great. I'm so that you're doing this. Yeah. So excited to be here. <laughs> awesome. This will be, I think, my first podcast. So this is a first for me to to be interviewed on this format. 
Ooh, well, welcome to the podcast life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's great. It's really just about loving the sound of your own voice is what I'm noticing as I edit these. I'm like, ah, oh, oh, do I really sound like that? Okay. That's fine. I'll leave it in there. I won't change it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So before we jump right into the scarcity mentality, um, I'll give you a slight update about like what's happening for me. Um, I am actually having a really good week this week. I have um, been waiting to hear from a job offer yet uh, so far and they've called I think all my references because they all text me afterwards. Um, and I pulled a card yesterday. I was like, oh, you know what? Whatever, I do want this job, but like if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But what do the cards say? Am I gonna get this job or not? I just want a simple answer cards, just answer me. And then I pulled the magician card and I was like, boom, okay. Whether or not I get it, I'm amazing. Facts. Exactly, yeah. That's <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's been my Monday. So I was like, oh, my Monday feels really good. Yeah, 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 jamming it up. Um, and today feels good. I woke up at like 7.30. And then kind of laid in bed for a bit, started scrolling, and I was like, nope, I should wash my hair. So I've just freshly washed my hair. Um, and I'm here. I love it. It looks great. Thank you. Thank you. I did a, a quick dry with a blow dryer, but instead of like combing through, I just held it and then like ran the dryer along it and then stopped. And then ran the dryer and then stopped. So, so that's like not tripping on me. Yeah. What about yourself? Um. I think maybe the most noticeable thing that's happened for me most recently has been um, under the influence of the full moon that we just had. Um, and I know it was straddling like this Aquarius Pisces energy. Um, and for me, what that looked like was a lot of, usually when the moon gets full, I'm like completely lit. Like I'm, I experience the most insomnia during full moon. Like the moon wants to communicate with me. There's something that I need to process. And so I usually try to regard lunar gateways like the full moon as an opportunity for me to actually dive into my intuition and sort of dive into the depths of my psyche and, and whatever's going on in my internal moon. And so this, this past, uh, like whenever it was like Friday, Thursday, Friday, um, yeah, like I literally maybe slept like two hours, um, on one of the days and I just was awake, wide awake in bed and like, just, you know, little chatters, these different processes were coming up for me. And I was just like, okay, yes, I can see absolutely the context of this full moon energy. Um, yeah. And it put me in a really great place where it was very validating that a lot of the messages that came through the moon helped me to sort of untangle some really messy, complicated things that I've been chewing on for a while. But also something that was very fortifying for me was the fact that this moon has brought a lot of messaging around celebrating my intuition and wrecking my intuition as being sharp um, and really on point. And so, yeah, that's, that's brought a certain degree of confirmation and solace for me just around my identity. And so I feel like more anchored and the universe is just saying like, I see you and I'm just reminding you who you are so you don't get uh, swept up in these systems and forget. So 
I feel like I'm still sort of coming down from this like deep sort of tactile and psychic communication with, with the moon. Wow. That is, wow. I am, I am in, in awe and I'm also so grateful for you to be able to share that as well with me. Um, the full moon was quite something. I was at the beach uh, with a few friends watching the moon and then we pulled some cards, but just everything about the whole situation was like so impromptu. We planned to do it like 20 minutes before we launched our YouTube video. Then we were like, cool, let's go sit and chill in the moon. And just every card pull was just like dragging you, but not even dragging you with your hair, just like dragging you with like the inside of your bowels. Like it's holding the underneath of your bowels and it's just dragging you along. And I'm just like, what is happening? But today we'll be chatting about scarcity mentality. And um, for me, scarcity mentality really rings around um, the fear to do something coupled with the, I guess the, the, the small lens perspective through which I see that thing. So for example, this podcast, I'm still absolutely anxious and nervous about it. And before I launched into doing it, I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know, let me do this research. I love doing research. So I did some research. There's a million podcasts. They all talk about like largely four to five basic topics and everybody and like all of them kind of say the same thing, but it's different people and they bring their uniqueness to it. I was thinking to myself, like, who needs another podcast? Nobody needs to hear me speak. Nobody wants to hear me speak. I am invaluable in that way. Like I don't have credentials. I don't have all of these big celebrities on here. This is going to be a waste of time. And immediately when I noticed that thought pattern, I tried to dive deep into it to see, you know, where it came from, how I can come out of it. And if really podcasting is not something that I wanted to do. And I noticed that I was scared and that I have sold myself the idea of success being centered around the few making it and the many consuming. Um, and so for me, in order to switch that mindset, it's an act of acting and just putting myself out there and just doing and then seeing, doing and then seeing, because the inaction is where the scarcity mentality thrives as well. Um, how have you, or at least what's your definition of scarcity mentality or what's your lens that you look at it through? Um, and how are you dealing with it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, to be honest, just my brain went through different layers around just sort of embracing this topic and preparing for this podcast. Um, being approached to be on the podcast threw me into scarcity mentality. And, and I'll, like, I'll give more of like my working definitions of, of what scarcity means, but, um, and really to me, like you, you use this term already, which is fear. I view scarcity as synonymous with fear. And I also view it as synonymous with insecure. Um, like there's something missing or lacking, or at least the perception that something is missing or lacking. Mm. Um, and from that, this fear state gets amplified or sort of generated. And so 
I realized that I had entertained this notion around my identity that something in me was missing or lacking that I couldn't step into the space of this podcast and actually speak on scarcity. And so that was interesting for me just to sort of observe and witness myself just thinking about scarcity and the opportunity to come and speak about it. Um, and yeah, I think that when it comes to scarcity mentality, there are so many ways of looking at it. And, and you've already kind of named that there's like different lenses. There's like the micro and the macro. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important piece of human, what I call human technology or human consciousness that's important to name when addressing anything in life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, like I see a lot of, when I think scarcity, I think identity. I think identity politics, and I think very much about um, colonialism. I think about the systems of oppression that we live under. So I kind of bounce back and forth between sort of the microcosmic manifestations of scarcity as structures of oppression, and then sort of minimizing back to that microcosm of how does that actually play out in my mind, in my life, in my body. Um, and so just looking at it from that larger scale, that my concept and my lived reality and experience of scarcity is highly informed by, by colonial scarcity. Mm. Um, and so for me, looking at just naming the systems and structures that we're under, so for me, it's actually like really identifying where the scarcity enters the conversation at least on an ideological level here in North America. We have white supremacy as a thread, and so I see a scarcity around a racial identity. And so white supremacy is a compensatory um, rea reaction or result to sort of overcompensate for whatever the perceived insecurity or scarcity is on a racial level. Then when we look at patriarchy, I regard it as the same thing, that patriarchy is really naming that there's a scarcity. There's some sort of fear that determines and is sort of like the, the bedrock for determining why one gender is more valuable than the other. Mm -hmm. And we see how that plays out. And then likewise, capitalism, seeing how that threads around how we conceptualize value and worth in our culture. And that the way that colonialism constructs worthiness and value has nothing to do with one's actual integration and knowing of oneself. Mm. Actually being rooted in an identity. I see that colonialism is actually lacking those roots. So for me, when I think of scarcity, like in this sort of cultural production kind of way, like larger scale, I think very much of identity and how identity is either supported in individuals from a young age to generate confidence or individuals are not supported at an early age and it generates um, this scarcity or fear around their identity, this, uh, this insecurity that's not being good enough. And so I think that really um, what we're talking about, like it, it gets activated in this particular way because when we're talking about our identities, we're talking about life, like we're talking about everything, like who we are, what we value, so on and so forth. And I think that um, 
it's really important to colonial society to a, not only is it built on this scarcity mentality, mm-hmm. but that it absolutely requires this perpetuation of fear um, and scarcity as a, so that control can happen. So mm-hmm. there's a lot that's going on. I think scarcity mentality as it informs colonialism was the result of disconnect, Europeans' disconnection from their land-based practice. Mm. And so, again, going back to identity, when I look at um, Indigenous cultures around the world or tribal cultures around the world, the way in which their concept of identity gets built up or generated is done in a natural context. You come to understand yourself in relation to the earth. You come to understand yourself in relation to the animal that you have to hunt for food or subsistence. You understand yourself in relationship to the cycles of how the water ebbs and flows. There's there's a way in which you come to understand yourself as a natural being and as part of nature that I think instills such a confidence in one's identity construction that this concept of scarcity has very little room to actually operate or or plant itself and grow. And so whenever I've, again, looked at different cultures around the world that are still operating in their land-based connectivity, I don't witness manifestations of scarcity. Mm. Um, Whereas looking at North American society under colonial conditioning, under colonial systems, that scarcity doesn't just exist, but it's constructed and designed as part of sort of the cogs to keep this mechanism going, is to Mm. keep everyone in fear and that that's really couched in keeping everyone's identity fragmented and disconnect from land as the self because i think fear is only allowed to creep in when we don't know who we are and that this really goes back to that you know the the african uh oracle that was in Greece, right? The Oracle of Delphi, that the, the key phrase was know thyself. Mm. And I think that we see that over and over again, especially even, again, looking in Africa around mystery systems um, and the indigenous cosmology, um, especially coming out of Kemet or what we call Egypt now, is very much anchored in understanding uh, knowing thyself. It's mm. this very mercurial, uh, wisdom that is brought through or manifested through the archetype of Toth or Tehuti, who is like the creator of all reality, the holder of all wisdom. Um, and so I really view that, that that ancestor, the role of the ancestor of Tehuti or Mercury is there to reinforce within us that message of how important it is for us to know ourselves and that knowledge is the anecdote to fear because when we don't know ourselves every fucking thing scares us but when i know that i am that earth and that in the summer i'm gonna get hot and a bunch of plants are gonna spring forth from me and when it's winter that everything will get dormant and pull the energy in to conserve it then i can embrace myself as part of that cyclical nature. I can see myself as a complex multidimensional being that is continuously shifting. And 
there's a confidence in that. Like I know for a fact that winter will happen again next year this time. And in that knowingness, I can prepare and plant the right seed for the right foods or the right ideas. And that is abundance. That knowingness and familiarity of the landscape to have the wherewithal and the tools and the skills to thrive in that landscape. And so that's where I really see the, the, I guess the bedrock of our scarcity is how it functions also politically as a tool here in North America that our governments and our systems need us to be fragmented in our identities mm -hmm. and they need to be um, uprooted, to have no roots so that we can continue sort of flailing in the, this 1984, like double speak, right? Um, where they're telling us the Ministry of Health is really actually the Ministry of Death. Mm. And, we, and we see this mix, this confusion, this intentional confusion that gets spun to keep everybody sort of in this fragmented state. And so all in all, I would say that scarcity as an identity politic in North America has looked like arrested development of a nation of people and that that arrested development is commodified and idealized mm. so that it can keep the scarcity factory going it's just more about perpetuating itself so it's a hot mess mm. it's how i say that it it's been constructed here as systems wow you were not joking about preparing and thinking about this completely. Um, kudos, first of all, that was phenomenal. Like, absolutely. I'm just like listening and I'm like, oh, I should take notes. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's keep going. That was absolutely amazing. Um, and I agree completely. And some of the information that you presented is information that I didn't really think about in terms of the scarcity lens and how it plays into everything that we do, like you're saying, right? Um, playing into the loss of identity, playing into not being able to pack that um, in. So I have a couple of questions for you just from that. Um, if scarcity is the uprootedness, the arrested development, um, and the cure or the, what did you call it? The anecdote is knowledge for that. What does that process look like? What is the, what is the knowing process? Because, you know, to know for myself, for example, and I'm going to use the podcast again, um, I had to tap into, you know, a strength that is there, whether or not I act and a confidence and an ability and a knowing that I'm able even before I do something. But, you know, that in itself is rooted in a process of getting to know myself, which is years and years and years of thinking I'm a whole, noticing that there's fragmentation and then trying to see how to build coherence around my own identity and around the things that I can do as well. Um, and then, you know, in terms of relating back to the land, I don't know how much access we have in terms of building into that know thyself and kind of knowing that relationship. 
um, in as much as we have this well-being lens to be able to know yourself and know your emotions, know your psychology and all of the stuff. But once again, you know, embarking on that process is also buying and consuming into it being the commodity. So in your perspective, how, how can one disengage from the you know commodity of wellness and getting to know yourself as a in thing and actually take it on as a lifestyle change so that we can overcome things like fear and um scarcity mentality so i think that it is the disconnection from land as the self is what gives space for scarcity to thrive and exist and so there's also a counter narrative that I've witnessed, and we see this in indigenous cultures around the world as indigenous cosmology. So when it comes to the human condition, there have been humans on this planet for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the questions of existentialism and who am I and why am I here have existed since life has been. So our ancestors, in all those thousands and thousands of years, chewing on these same fundamental questions of life and of identity and of meaning and purpose, generated culture. They generated practices. And the way in which this culture over time in its refinement as more knowledge got integrated and cohered, that there became systems, almost like the way that here, in order to, you know, get a good paying job to live, we funnel you into this, the factory of elementary school, high school, post-secondary education. And so these institutions that we get funneled into and out of that are supposed to have the responsibility of refining us and giving us identity and, and value in the society with uh, how much we can earn, that indigenous cultures equally have institutions that foster this awareness and we see this and i talk about it a lot in terms of the tree of life so when you look at indigenous cultures around the world this process of refining wisdom and understanding the human condition is manifest in song um, through fabric in stories so for instance we have stories of elements who are our ancestors you know, the fire, the water, the earth, the so on and so forth. Um, and that as we come to understand, again, as I was saying, that the land is us. When I say that the fire is my ancestor, I'm saying I have fire in me. Mm. I have the capabilities of fire. I can tap its height. I can tap its challenges and low points. That is embedded within me to access as a tool. And so operating from that place that indigenous cosmology of you are the nature and the nature is you and here we've created spaces there's essentially blueprints and so this is why i like really focusing on mythos or story or like cultural mythology because when you look at cultural story it's a perfect example of the kind of institutional cultural containers that indigenous people create where what can get unpacked well, we call it now alchemy. And the root word and the etymology of alchemy is literally black science. Mm. 
right? Alchemy. That's, it's the black sciences. So when you're talking about blackness, that's a key that your point of perspective is not external, but it's internal. Mm-hmm. You're turning your eyes inside. So this is now where we understand that a key, a very fundamental key in indigenous knowledge system is the perspective and understanding of esoteric wisdom in contrast to exoteric wisdom. So when we go to the black, we're going inside. This is esoteric. So when we go inside to participate in processes, processes of alchemy as the black arts, we are moving the fear. We are transforming that fragmentation, bringing it into cohesion, back into fragmentation again, back into cohesion again. We are discussing the science of psychology. We are discussing the science of behavioral psychology. This is what alchemy is. And it exists on a social level, a psychological level, and a spiritual level. Alchemy is literally the art of being able to transmute and transform the basic elements into their more refined and higher state. Mm -hmm. And this is literally what another term for this process would be rites of passage. Indigenous cultures created containers for rites of passage because they already had a refined blueprint that they've worked on for thousands of years, where they see the same human condition patterns arise again and again and again. So then we see it in a story, and it gets told with archetypes. The archetype of fire meets the archetype of water. They have a battle. One kills the other. The killing or the murder is a metaphor for that fragmentation. Uh Oh, here we go. We're talking alchemy again, right? Looking again at the mythos of Osiris and Isis, Hmm. that African story. Again, that's the blueprint for alchemy and for personal development there. When Osiris gets fragmented, fragmentation, then we see Isis come along and she brings cohesion. She glues all the pieces back together again, but she doesn't resume Osiris back to his previous state because that's never the goal in alchemy. The goal is never to start off as a chunk of coal, only to return to a Mm -hmm. chunk of coal. The goal of alchemy is to start off as a chunk of coal so that you can develop into gold. You can develop into diamond. And so this is also a concept, again, that we see that actually gets picked up in sort of modern masonry around this idea of we're given this slab or this rock, and it is our job or responsibility to perfect our square. That is just other ways of describing that esoteric process of going inward to the black, and refining one's consciousness through these alchemical processes, mm. through the death and rebirth. So our ancestors were walking us through these processes. So we had facilitation. So our ancestors, when we came to them and they, we, they saw the signs and symptoms of fragmentation, come, honey child, come, come. Let me take you to this bush because the nature will show you. Let me take you to this river because the nature will show you. And let me facilitate this very human process that will help you gain the keys to understanding how to unlock yourself, Mm. how to refine yourself and go from that coal to that goal or that diamond. Mm -hmm. So 
So my answer in short is alchemy. <laughs> it's going right back to the indigenous wisdom of our ancestors because mm -hmm. alchemy is behavioral science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Again, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we should be holding this at a literary awards evening <laughs> where this is a full book that you've written and we're just jumping into scope by scope and figuring out where each of these lay. Alchemy being a black science or black, it, mind blown, absolutely mind blown. And the moment you said that, I thought of it in several different layers. The first layer was, um, if we think about the Big Bang theory, or if we think about, you know, that nothingness to everything, nothingness to everything. And so the black sciences itself, even external to human existence, is also that already, right? Um, and then the black sciences with regard to race, I thought, or what came upon me was thinking about the scrutinizing of black people in order to try to get to that bedrock or get to that foundation that keeps them going and keeps them ticking. And so my first question is around that. If we think about it on that racial lens as the black sciences, what is your take on this balance of black people being the investigated subject and then whatever else, the investigator, what is that um, relationship to you, would you say? Yes. So we're, you're talking about the binary. So as complex human and spiritual beings, we occupy micro and macrocosms, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and that part of, um, oh, my thought just kind of went there. See if I can get it back. <laughs> um, can you repeat the last part of your question or just give me a couple of words? Absolutely, yeah. So if we think about, I guess, the binary now that I have the term for it, um, mm -hmm. what, what, what do you think about the Black people being the subject of experimentation um, and then the otherness or whatever it is, which largely has been whiteness, um, yeah. is then the spectator or the experiment um, or like the scientist who's experimenting? Yes. So this is, in my perspective, this is where Black, this is where alchemy as esoteric inside is severed. And now everybody's looking exoterically. So this is what happens when the ego is running the show and you don't have facilitators and institutions in your culture to walk you through the stages of transformation. So what that looks like and what that means then is you're in a state of arrested development. Um, and that in that state of arrested development, you will always fall into the trap of the binary because the binary that we exist or experience in this reality is a construct. Mm. It is not the full truth of reality. This or that is not complex. Black or white, that's not complex. The world is, does not actually operate in that way. Um, but there's, it has sort of its functional uses for us to have these as reference points. Um, so going back to this idea, especially of Europeans in the context of colonialism and the construction of race as white supremacy and as part of these larger systems of oppression that are built on scarcity and maintain them, that going back to Europe, so before the first ships left to come and begin colonizing 
the new world, that there was arrested development that happened. A fracturing and disconnect had happened there at their root mm. for whatever reason. And that's when they started burning their witches, mm. which, are the, which were the women who were connected to the land. Mm. So people who had their identity and their power was within them because they knew who they were as part of nature. But a fragmentation happened somewhere in that European history where they went from land-based to disconnect. And so that sense of disconnection from the land means that European people then, in terms of their identity politics, were disconnect from themselves. And when you're disconnect from yourself, you can do all kinds of projecting things like other something else, right? It makes it easy for those Europeans to find others mm. or that compare and contrast. And to utilize that compare and contrast as justification for whatever violence. So the fact that there is a disconnect for Europeans around their identity has resulted in them undergoing sort of a warped kind of projection psychological state where they are no longer within their own bodies. A disembodiment has happened in the disconnection from the land. So they've disconnected from their body, which means they can't help but experiment on somebody else, mm. right? Mm. Because they see you as embodied, so you get to be that external point of view that they can kind of nitpick why to help them figure out who they are. Because mm. Europeans, especially under white supremacy, have made such a point to study melanin. Let me tell you, let me tell you, mm. okay? These people have been studying melanin so hard, dissecting black people, dissecting our asses, dissecting whatever pieces of us. Why? Mm. When we look at like Jordan Peele and the work that he's done with movies like Get Out, mm. where we see the concept of the extraction or body snatching, what we're seeing is somebody who is basically showing that they have a fundamental disconnect to themselves and in that, in that disconnection, there's a desire to be that thing. So now in that context of that movie, we see white people literally body snatching black people because the white people, again, are disembodied. They live in a culture where they are disconnect from themselves. So in desperation now, to figure out who they are, they have to destroy and experiment and nitpick everything else that's in proximity to them. Mm. That's exoterism. They are not going into the black. They are running away from the black. This is where the creation of the nigger was born in the white imagination as that part of the self that is not understood mm. and is feared and we are keeping distance from it. So integration is not happening. Integration is not happening, which means you're not turning your coal into diamond, right? When you're not integrating the wisdom and everything is outside, we already understand what that means. That means you're deaf and you're destroying because you don't know who you are. Mm. And when you don't know who you are, it's a shit show. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Can we talk forever? Because... <laughs> This is amazing. Just you the way, wow. I guess it's also because I don't, 
we've only met once and I, um, we, we haven't gotten to know each other in that way. So I don't know like what your background is or what your history is in order to learn what your lens can be, um, I guess, influenced by or, you know, what's coming through. But wowee, wowee, absolutely amazing stuff. Awesome. So um, I wrote here earlier when you were chatting about colonialism and white supremacy and all of this stuff. And I wrote, which, which was a spelling area, but I believe very much in Freudian slips and not necessarily just that they're existing communication, but they exist in all sorts of things. And I wrote colonialism. Mm. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow, that's, that's wild. And you mentioned the fragmentation of, you know, the self and whether or not that's cloaked in, you know, a white body or a black body or whatever the case may be uh, nowadays, this, this term of being disembodied and thinking of um, the way that white supremacy acts as that thing that has no body, it immediately jolted me into thinking about how black people are always thought of as a collective, as a group, as a signifier for that thing. But white people have this idea and this right or claim to individuality and not belonging to that body of people and not belonging to that body of perspective or understanding or even their own history. And it's even goes so far as to not wanting to be attached to their ancestors, right? A lot of a lot of white folks that I chat to about things like slavery um, and just colonialism in general, they're like, yeah, but I'm not my grandparents. And it's like, yeah, but you don't get what I'm saying. Neither am I. But why is it that I'm in the position to still be suffering in the exact same way that they were, my ancestors were, but you feel like you're in a position where you're not contributing directly to what your ancestors did like you're not carrying that along and you just unlocked something that i've been thinking about for so long it is that disembodiment it is that notion of not having a body even the connectedness to that body such that there's even this lack of connection or want to connect and this is my other point so you know for me looking at it through my lens i'm like you know maybe it's a speaking in duality terms maybe it's an on and off switch right maybe they're like oh i don't want to think about my ancestors i'm not attached or whoa i'm going to switch this on and definitely delving into my ancestors and reaching out to spirit and all of these things is that switch of the button do you think nowadays right if we frame it in 2020 um is it a want or like a a a, a choice or is it part of the scarcity mentality of white supremacy and colonialism that they came with like you said that fragmentation from the root that is showing itself in this inability to engage in constructive conversation with black people but also just people that are you know oppressed or don't have this same um pedestal um or this same self-pedestalization um, of thought? What do you think about that? And then my second question is, um, 
Wow, this does really happen. Thoughts get snatched. Uh, <laughs> Christ, what's my second question? Oh, and then my second question is just, you know, when we talk then about the um, knowing thyself, I find it so intriguing that there's always this system at play where, um, let's say, for example, um, you know, like uh, anti-racism and when white people step into an anti-racism space, so whether it's a book or knowledge that they're gaining and they have this thing of knowing and then using that knowing to dominate you. But I believe that when you know yourself truly, dominance isn't something you want to assert onto people. Dominating spaces isn't something that's in your um, mind or in your thing or in your desired pot because you don't want to enact something on somebody that is going to suppress them and oppress them. Instead, you want to invite them into that openness, into that knowing space. It's really not a question, but we'll take on the previous question about that a lack of connection nowadays is that a choice that folks can you know choose otherwise or is it much deeper than that okay so um it's all absolutely i think it's entirely relevant to the the scarcity origins of whiteness as colonialism as imperialism and so um, as you mentioned, the way in which systems of white supremacy have been designed are in such a way where white people continue to idealize and participate in their own fragmentation. So going back to what I was saying in terms of the disconnect from land-based practice, so when you look around the world at indigenous cultures and cosmology, it's all about circle wisdom. The circle is the symbol to represent the importance, and you see this again, especially in African indigeneity, the importance of the circle is a dialogue. It's a conversation, a conversation with the land as you, right? It's conversation always. So when it, so now as you're talking about power and how power gets shifted or informed by colonialism, that we see how, um, now I'm also trying to make sure my thoughts don't get snatched because there's like a few different things and I took some notes. So I'm gonna take a little look at them real quick to make sure I'm, I'm on point. But um, yeah, that basically it has to do with the, the circle and the circle wisdom, again, of understanding who you are. And so when you understand who you are, remember when I mentioned the, the contrast between esoteric, is that alchemy, that going into the black within, in contrast to the exoteric, which is going out externally, that what we're essentially what we see is that, oh, where are these thoughts? I have so much that are trying to come through. So just kind of bear with me now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 
So the systems that we have now that are built in scarcity are built to continue to perpetuate that scarcity. So when you meet white people and you say, is it a question of choice between this white person choosing to, you know, do this or choosing to do that? I would say that the way that you meet and know, the way that we see white people today is still living in that legacy of fragmentation. So even they themselves don't know what they are missing. Mm. They themselves, because it's this factory of white supremacy has been going for so long and pumping out product for so long that in, it, in and of itself, it is continuously perpetuating that gap between people's rootedness that existed at one point in time and this new state that the white supremacy likes to try to convince us is the way that the world has always been mm. and that this is nature and this is natural. The reality of it, like going back to your saying like responsibility and how it lands on white people and responsibility and how it lands on black people, the fact of the matter is, is that in a complex world, made up of these sort of binary constructs of good and bad, guilty and innocent. When it comes to colonialism, there's no guilty and innocent. That binary is problematic. Mm. That it's, this is where it's important for the white person, just as it is for the black person to understand. You are guilty and innocent, one and the same. Your ability to hold both of those is integration. Your inability to hold both of those is a reflection of your lack of integration and is a revelation of your arrested development still as a legacy of that disconnect that's just been ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. Mm. Because when we look at the wisdom that our ancestors give us, we are the binary. We are the extremes integrated into one. And so this is where the wisdom of the indigenous um, mathematics of one plus one equals three and not two. And that has to do with the fact that we have these one plus one, the black and white opposition. And when it gets integrated within us, we are able to transcend it and become something greater, a mixture of both, but still elevated. And the fact that we are not doing that as a culture today in North America, the fact that white people are not doing that, the fact that white supremacy structures are not prioritizing that is because if it did, the scarcity that it was built on will collapse. Mm. The compensation, the, comp the compensatory systems that it created will collapse. Because if white people actually populated their humanity and their human technology as alchemy, as going through their rites of passage, we would not be in a scarcity state because everyone's sense of power would be empowerment. Mm. It would be internal because when you know that you're alpha and omega, mm. nobody can fuck with you, period. And you move differently in the world. Right? Mm -hmm. But but the thing is is that our society does not want to produce confident, independent, connected individuals. It wants to control. Mm. So it has a vested interest in maintaining our fragmentation and our brokenness and this confusion. Mm -hmm. So when you say is it a choice, I would say it is a legacy and that it does become a choice as part of that individual's responsibility to decide whether or not in their incarnating to this dimension, are you here to fucking do the work that your soul wanted mm. you to come here for or what? 
because everybody came down here to populate life as humanity, which as we all know is very complex. It's mm. like a tesseract. It's a big gem, a jewel. It's so powerful. We don't even know what to do with it. <laughs> We're here today talking about human technology. Who are we? How do we navigate ourselves mm. still, right? So it really comes down to are people actually living in right relation? Are people living in resonance with their soul and their spirit purpose and path, which is what our ancestors were all about. That's why the second we were born, an ancestor was given to us, whether it was the time we were born, oh, you're born at seven o'clock, that's the gateway of ma'at. Ma'at is your, you know, the way in which you come through the world, that's your matrix, okay, that's a strong ancestral energy, the day of the week. Okay, mm. so you're born on Wednesday, so that's a strong Mercury energy, then you're going to also have a certain articulation or gift for articulation. Our ancestors had these ways of understanding and framing us. We are so embedded into nature and our ancestors made sure we understood that we are the greatness that we're looking at. Because this is the circle, we are dialoguing with a different version of ourself. When I'm talking to fire, that's still me. But thousands of years ago, mm. in my primordial form, but because I had fire and water and they combined together and oh, now carbon. Okay. And then when carbon overlaps with other particles, what happens? Oh, we have a heart. Oh, we have a lung. Oh, we have a whole Anaya. Right. And that's the circle wisdom. Like you said, you can't move forward in the circle if you don't realize that mm. where you come from and the fact that Unless you know where you came from in the circle, you will never have the coherence of seeing your progress and understanding where you are in your journey. Mm. And we see this again in like religious concepts of things like Jacob's ladder, for instance, or like anytime you see ladders symbolically in spiritual context, ladders are that representation of circle wisdom, just unrolled in a sort of like a linear fashion, but it's the same wisdom. The ladder is the DNA spiral, mm. period. So when our ancestors talking, talk about climbing a ladder or descending a ladder, climbing a tree or descending a tree, that's what they're talking about. Because when you're tapped into circle wisdom, you're tapped into your ancestry, you're tapped into your genetics. So you know next year when that crow comes to visit you again, it could be the same crow from last year, but it's coming with a different 2.0 from the message it brought you last year. Mm. And when you see it next year, it's going to come with message 3.0. It's continuous processes of upgrading because upgrading and dynamism and fluidity is also part of what it means to be human. Mm. But the way in which, again, colonialism has constructed everything, it has to hell with the circle. To hell with the dialogue, so I don't even talk to myself. I don't even talk mm. to the water or the earth. I don't talk, period. And when you don't talk, there is no life because life is a conversation. And our ancestors showed us that. That's what they use with, when they do ceremony in circle and with drums. The drum was one of the first instruments that our, our ancestors created. And they didn't just make one drum. When you show up to circular space, it's not just one drum happening. Mm -hmm. It's a series of drums. 
and they always follow a particular pattern to mimic that dialogue, that quantum physics. This is how we knit and stitch life is we talk, mm. we make music, we build elements on top of each other so they become more complex things. This is how we build the world together. It's through conversation. But colonialism has broken that conversation. So that's where, again, that disconnect remains. Mm. When you talk to white people about things like global warming, and there's such a disconnect there that most folks don't even understand the commonality between or the responsibility of when I'm driving in my car and I throw that McDonald's cup out the window. Oh, really? Where does that cup go, fam? It's that disconnect that is representative of colonialism. And it is that disconnect that is killing us because there's no conversation. And there's no conversation, there's no connection. No connection, no life, period. Mm. And I'll stop there. <laughs> I feel like mm. I'm ranting. No, it was all, wow. wow. And there were periods as you were talking where you would say something and I would just, I guess, I don't know, download some piece of knowledge and then you'd say that and I was like, <gasps> Oh my goodness. I'm actually, <laughs> wait, what's happening? I actually get what you're saying. That's absolutely amazing. Wow, wow, wow. So noticing that, you know, it is both a choice um, to be, and I also think the choice lies in choosing to be aware and choosing to be in the stillness. And I guess that's why, um, you know, meditation has been about being in a, a quiet place and stuff like that. And um, isn't really about controlling the thoughts, but it's about controlling you and tapping into yourself so that you feel the flow and you actually are able to exist at that same time period as your body is existing as well. Um, what is the... So I guess we're going to go into cultural appropriation as scarcity or look at it with the scarcity lens, because as you were mentioning about rites of passage, I remember a conversation we had about tarot and my sort of weird discomfort to using tarot, to using a tarot that has white people on it. Um, and then to even understanding where tarot comes from, right? And figuring out that um, it's a rite of passage that was learned from, you know, our ancestors and then brought into this colonial framework. And so that's where they came up with, you know, the fraternities and all of those things as well. So I'm having this thought right now where I'm trying to find a way to understand cultural appropriation, ownership of um, culture, I guess, and then ownership of thought as well. Because the way that I'm thinking about it is 
um, if you get, you know, like a foreigner uh, in, a, in, in a village anywhere, right? If you go to a village as a foreigner, even as yourself, and you sit there, the folks will try to welcome you and integrate you into the system. So they will show you as well everything that they do, right? And try to share that knowledge with you. But then you get a point where there's, see, like, this is where I'm not able to meet the two because it's like having that experience and knowing that and then also thinking about cultural appropriation and how that is embedded in the suppression of the indigenous folks um, living their true purpose or even, you know, going through their rites of passage so that you can steal it and then also create it and like painted in something else but like where it's weird it's a weird thought process that I'm having around that and I just I, I don't know do you have any perspective around cultural appropriation this ownership of thought and practice and then rites of passage as well through the scarcity lens mm -hmm. I find it interesting that when I look at different um, cosmologies from around the world and like magic practices or energetic practices, while there are a lot of very unique differences that belong to each group based on location, et cetera, et cetera, resources, that there are a lot of fundamental sort of truisms, like this, this fundamental sort of um, pieces, almost like a universality that you find embedded. Mm. So for instance, even when you look at the North culture, who are white people, um, they operate a lot out of circle wisdom. One of their primary protection symbols is a big circle with a series of like bows like penetrating through it. So the thing, it is really interesting when like looking at the timeline of colonialism, like pre-colonialism to colonialism now and where we are with it, to kind of how do we wrap our heads around the idea of identity, especially white identity? Um, and just, yeah, it gets messy because essentially it would look like pre-colonially, a fragmentation happens in Europe. Some scarcity is identified there. That gives breed to all of these other constructions to systematically oppress certain people. Um, and then, like you said, in part of that process of colonizing the world, so as these Europeans in their unsettled state or whatever, in their land disconnect state, um, in this tension, <laughs> as Lee Miracle calls it, in this tense disembodied state, um, go all over the world and especially in Africa. And what they do, as you pointed out in so, like in so many words, is steal. Mm. What they couldn't destroy outright as part of their colonization to enforce their fragmentation on folks who already were coherent. But here they come to violently enforce brokenness mm. on circle people, only so that they can then steal some of that circle wisdom, 
hide it in their own covens, rebrand it, put their own white flavor on it. And then as you're saying now, there's sort of this new manifestation. And part of what that looks like in our modern culture, and you talked about commodification, is like the new white yoga teacher. Mm. Or like the white energy, um, energy body worker, mm. you know, or the white um, crystal worker or color worker or sonic worker. Basically, white people using indigenous technology. Mm. Technology they stole or would have already had access to if they stayed connected to their roots, like you said. Mm -hmm. But because there's a disconnect there, they don't, as far as they're concerned, it's understandable where the insecurity comes from. Because when you believe you come from nothing, mm. and that's actually part of you, or you feel like you're lacking some big important thing, it, it starts to make sense how the white, the white supremacist psyche operates. It's literally in a state of desperation, like it's flailing mm. to find something that it can cling on to, to have some degree of stability or knowing this. Mm. So like you said, it looks like that violence of stealing and of rebranding it, making it Eurocentric mm. um, and what that looks like in our culture. And that in order to have enlightenment, which is the, the purpose of humanity, right, is to be aware to know thyself. Use your go-go gadget, your technology. That's why you came here with all of these eyes and arms and legs and, you know, different ways of sensing the world. Um, so yeah, I think it's, um, it really comes down to this, like we're saying, this, this fragmentation, this core fragmentation that's occurred at one point in time. And so, and deny commodification for one, deny, 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 because our ancestors, they didn't have to build a special fort. They didn't have to mine something special. No. Esoteric, go inside, learn the tools, under, start to make it your business to learn your inner landscape, your psychological landscape, mm. your spiritual landscape, because that is the only work any of us is here to do is to refine our own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a society where the evolution of consciousness is not prioritized. In fact, they want the opposite because the opposite allows you to be more controllable. They want the sheep because then they can run the show how they want. Mm. Um, so I think that's also just important to like reaff reaffirm in our society that why these things are not happening in this big sweep, even though we may have this wisdom, um, is because it actually, it can't be invested in the thing that's going to dismantle it. It's not going to do that. The mm. same thing with whiteness, okay? Because these systems are also playing out on a micro level. So when it comes to actually speaking to white people who are not interested in learning how to be a better human by virtue of learning fragmentation, learning cohesion, learning their own alchemy, because if they were to do that process of integration, they would destroy the construct of their own whiteness if they were to do that. Mm. But there's a lot going on where our society puts out all these little golden tickets, right? There's a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Incentive 
it gives a lot of incentive for people to not tap into their humanity, especially white people. Because look, I'm giving you this kickback, this kickback, this kickback. Mm. Come on, you don't need to know yourself. You don't need personal power. Let me teach you how to hold power over the neighbor across the street. Mm. That's let me tell you how you can make $10,000 over that neighbor. Let me tell you how you can have a bigger car over that person. So it throws you back into the trap of a compare and contrast paradigm to remind you of what you don't have. Because again, the basis of these systems is that scarcity, that constructed scarcity. Um, so yeah, I, I, I personally, it's a point of trauma for me, especially like when I, meet white people who are educating on indigenous knowledge systems. It's mm -hmm. a huge trauma and violence, and I'm sure you experience it. Um, so for me, it's a hard no. My teachers are not white people, period. That's for me. That's for me on a personal level, mm -hmm. because I understand that everything I need is in the black, whether it's in my mind, whether it's in my melanin, in my blackness, that's where I'm going to find my roots, my fire and my water and my earth ancestors. That's where I am. That's what I want. Anything that creates a distance between me and tapping that blackness, my esoteric abilities, that's a problem and that's a point of violence. Mm. And that's where whiteness has inserted itself. It's to be that point of violence. That's how colonialism operates. It's to be that point of violence to say, you don't get to be a human being and to know your technology and to, and to commit alchemy. I see you doing it and I don't like it. Why? Because I don't know how to do it. So I need to stop you from doing it and then steal your tools so that I can slyly insidiously figure out what the fuck, how did you get that? How did your pudding get so good, girl? Mm. I need to steal that ingredient while I simultaneously destroy you. And then that way, two weeks, when you come around the corner and you see me extra shiny, I can say it was my ancestry that did this. And that's where the cultural appropriation piece starts to come in, mm. is where we're starting to really navigate power in a violent way. So I think that is also another piece around being a, someone who is culturally celebrating versus culturally appropriating is anchored in what are you doing around how scarcity lands on you and how do you navigate power? I think those are the two things that would really inform if you're celebrating or if you're harming. Because especially here in the part of BC where I'm at, it's like known, I'm close to Nelson, and this place is like known for white hippies. I find the term white hippies amusing because I, view, I understand it as a euphemism for acceptable white violence. That's what I understand. It. I understand hippies to be an acceptable form of white appropriative violence. Mm. Because it's white people and they're struggling to get connected back to land. That's what we're seeing. In white hippies, we're seeing a, a desire to reconnect back to land. That's why they're not wearing their shoes. That's why their hair is all straggly. That's why everybody's smoking the marijuana because they're trying to get back to their roots. But they're really messy about it and really fumbling and unsure about how to do that. Another manifestation of that white hippie that is a cousin to the white hippie is the white Rasta. Mm. So many Jafakins over here. Like, are you serious right now? 
like I'm and the thing is like literally I was staying a couple months ago at a friend's property in the valley and right across the street from them are white rastas with the whole flag of Zion with the lion of Judah and the red and the yellow and the green all of our signs and symbols they have a flag waving in their entry and so for me when I encounter white rastas that's another modern demonstration of white violence mm. as it is desperate to get itself back to land so when we see white rastas again what we're seeing are white people who are aware of their fragmentation but they're confused about it mm. and so instead of going to their roots to heal they're still jumping to hijack the blackness mm. they're jumping to steal blackness why? Because when they, look to when they look to blackness, when they look to BIPOC, they see nature. Because remember, when they were fragmented in Europe and they left on their ships to go everywhere, everybody was one with nature. Mm. Everybody was working with the circle. That's why there's this, still to this day, the magic Negro, the magic indigenous person, is because we're said to have almost these magical spiritual powers. Why? Because we're connected to mm. nature. We move with the wind. The water listens to us. The moon talks to me in my sleep, right? There's relationship there. Um, so this is a couple of examples. Like I said, the white rasta and the white hippie are demonstrations of white people who are feeling that fragmentation and discomfort, but are going about it in a really confused way. And they're just recreating more white violence. Mm, mm. Wow, Jafakins, that got me. That got me. It took me a moment to try to not laugh out loud for um, that. I was like, woo, child. Right? That's crazy. But it's real, Jafakins. And I've been to a couple of festivals um, in my life. And the only festivals I've been to have been in BC. Um, and there was a lot of there's a lot of cultural appropriation. Um, and then was also this exactly what you're saying. Like there was these groups of white people who were coming off objectively as very much like Jamaican and they had dreads and like all of the matted hairs and all of this stuff. And it got me thinking about this, like, what is that division between, you know, cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? And, you know, then it's also the tying of themselves to our ancestors, and then they can step into that. But it's like, I don't know what it is about people being so afraid to be connected to your history. Like, it's yours. Horrible right. and all. It's yours. Like, I have a South African history, which I've had to, you know, revel with it myself and figure out where, where the cohesion can happen, but also understanding how much fragmentation there's been even prior to my arrival. And I think it's that, you know, looking back into what are the ways that could have contributed to the circumstances that I was in. Um, and then also what are the, what are the things that contribute to my parents and individuals in my family being 
who they are, right? When you're a kid, you don't really have a choice. But as you grow up, that choice becomes more and more apparent. And it might also be, you know, not necessarily a choice into, oh my goodness, I'm going to choose to break down my fragmentation or I'm going to choose to break down the scarcity because you might not even be aware of what it's called. But it is the sense of awareness. And I try to describe it to people. And and it's really weird because it's, in my head, I've never looked for community until I moved to Vancouver. It was never something in my head where I was like, oh, I'm lacking community. I totally need to find community. Because back home, everybody has Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is that notion that says, you know, I exist because of you. And you exist because of me. And in another conversation I was having with Sly on the podcast is about genuinely having a sense of duty to each other and understanding how the gifts that you have, even that refining, that, that, that alchemy state, in as much as it's internal, what happens once you thrive and once you build out that diamond is it, it reverberates outside it reverberates outward and so in your own inner healing you're as a byproduct healing everybody else around you and so that even comes in with being aware and being able to hold space but also just even cultivating your purpose and your skill set because the moment you build skill and ability all of those around you are affected. Whether or not you use that skill and ability to help them or to harm them, it still affects when you know who you are and also just by purely existing. So I do love that notion of, you know, tapping back into it and alchemy being that. And I'm chuckling in my head now because I think of the book, The Alchemist, that, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Paulo something. No, uh, Khalil Gibran. Didn't he write The Alchemist? Oh! Now I want to like Google it. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Okay. Everybody who's not going to be seeing the video, we're just Googling on our phones now to make sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's see The Alchemist. No, with Paolo Coelho. Oh, you're right. Okay. But what are you talking about, though? I'm going to look it up because I know Khalil Gibran has another, um, is a Lebanese writer and also wrote some other meaningful books, The Prophet. So that's what Khalil Gibran wrote. Oh, okay. The Prophet. Okay. The Prophet with the Alchemist. Okay. Because I was like, <laughs> for a second, I was like, yo, appropriation happening in books. <laughs> like, no, he just copied and pasted somebody else's work, which is not a foreign thing. And we know yeah. that as well. Um, the last little bit here that I, I'm super interested in is this idea of ownership of thought and how that is also, um, or how if you're leaning a lot into the scarcity mentality, you, um, you hold, as well as colonialism, there's this holding of intellectual property and like intellectual pro pro propriety am i saying that word right intellectual yeah. propriety yeah right so basically being able to patent a thought and being like this is my thought that i had in 1965 and everybody else after me who has it needs to know that i had it so that you can have it too and i find it so interesting because on the one hand when we're talking about this 
collectivism outlook where it takes a village to raise somebody, um, which is, you know, also even in that takes a village to raise someone, it's always to help you be better internally and to align with yourself internally and to tune yourself in that way. Um, and, 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 you know, everybody has the same thought, but even everybody has a thought that is new to you because you're in this developing stage. And so they don't hold it against you, A, to not house that thought, and B, they don't hold it against you if that thought organically comes up in your mind and you say whatever thought it is, right? So a lot of kids think that they come up with things all the time. They're like, this is me, I've figured it out. And you know, um, you can either bash them and say, no, sorry, little child whoever 15 bajillion years ago has already had that thought. So, you, so your thought is invalid. And that's how I've had a relationship with uh, learning in university and doing research. And even in philosophy is, you know, this notion of citation. So citing people who have come before you um, with that thought or who have helped you get to that final end point. And I guess what I'm still also kind of battling with is trying to merge those two schools of, or, or processes of thinking, because, you know, I come from um, a village mentality where it takes a village, right? We're all working towards this one goal and everybody's thought matters. And then we can dissect what that thought process looks like as well where you can be the first one literally in your, in your village who's come up with this thing, right? There's this celebration of the newness of ideas and this originality, even if it wasn't the first time. But when I think about all the things that I've studied and even now trying to pursue school again, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how many people have thought of this thought before me? How many white men have thought of it before that I'm gonna have to cite? And once again, with the cultural appropriation and appreciation, is it the citing of said practice that would kind of be the anecdote to cultural appropriation or how do we how do we move like how do it because it's really it's really frustrating to guide lost people even myself what, what one day i feel like i'm a guide the next day i feel like i'm the lost and it's really frustrating to guide lost people because they need you to iron out the problem and need you to iron out the solution at the same time and that process of moving from problem to solution is broken and that for me is where i see the fragmentation is in that processing where you don't know what the problem is you have no clue what the solution is and you don't know how to even go on that journey um what is that what is the solution to cultural appropriation is it the citing of said practice right um but then also in the thought process for in this human thing you know i don't know i don't know how to go into doing research and have these ideas come upon me and these thoughts that feel so unique to me and so genuinely new but then have this continuous shutdown of like oh but you didn't name the 70,000 people that came before you because back home it's part of you those 70,000 people are what made you 
there with the reason why you have this thought and so the only important thing is that you have the thought not necessarily that the thought comes from 50 billion years ago and so that's something that i'm trying to reason with and understand like how do we yeah how do we explore that i don't know if that if that's ever been something that's you know you've had to work with or think about yeah absolutely definitely had i mean internalizing my own colonial conditioning i have often and many times still throw myself into a compare and contrast paradigm to discern my worth um but also there was so much that you just shared there and there's so much that i want to speak to it there's like you said in terms of when we have a thought that in you know your sort of tribal framework the way that that thought or idea or innovation gets held by the community is that the community was part of a matrix that birthed that and that the divine or source or the ancestors decided to choose you as the vessel through which this idea would manifest uh here concretely into the world um so this idea of citation i think is a very colonial construct this idea of well if you've had an idea then you have to find everyone who's ever had it in order to validate your idea so it's this notion that like new thoughts aren't useful it's like it has to be built on something somebody else has already put down so there's a lot of so again this is colonial thinking because there's some like problematic power dynamics at play there when we really understand ourselves space and time don't exist. So this idea of who came first, who came last is really a menial, egoic musing that we just like tether ourselves with. That first and last don't matter because it's all the same. Like, mm -hmm. right, there's no, there's no time frame there. But I think that, and so yeah I, this is where i think colonialism has this idea of superiority and first come and like this this conqueror mentality where you have to be the first to overcome the summit then we have to name the summit after you like mm. that kind of fuckery um which i don't necessarily think um coheres or translates um into like you know sort of indigeneity when i think of it broadly mm -hmm. Um, also this, I, I like the idea of when you were saying about like the tribe and like the whole sort of the collective being like this matrix or container to hold, mm -hmm. um, to me, when I think of thoughts, I think of again, Tahuti, who is the, uh, African archetype of the mind who is said to be the creator of the universe and of the cube, the tree of life, etc. And that literally toss is very, almost like a wordplay, very close to thought. Sometimes his name is pronounced as thought. And that thoughts, to me, it, it conjures up this image of like a nervous system, like a bunch of nervous synapses, like firing off and engaging in that fundamental life dialogue with each other. That's what I see. I see the nervous system kind of doing this thing and our, the thing is 
that's so interesting about our nervous systems is that they're not just these tactile sort of internally locked away, you know, apparatus. Mm. There's also sort of invisible external aspects to our nervous system as well. So we literally feel other people. We can literally feel other people's heart health. We can literally tap into other people's thoughts when we're in proximity to them or if we're occupying a same wavelength. So if you tapped into a same vibrationary pattern, all of a sudden the things that live on that vibration are going to become available to you just the same way they're available to someone else across the world. Mm. You know, it's almost like if you play the A note, you're going to get all of these things that come with it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where like, there's a messiness around authorship Mm. and who came first. Um, But I think also that because of the, the way in which the structures of colonialism have come to be and have warped, our thoughts and have like informed our thoughts and like rebuilt us um, that we ourselves fall into this trapping of like me first. It really, again, it goes back to that sort of arrested development. Mm. It makes me think of chakras and it also makes me think of this like fundamental wisdom in the Kabbalah, which is that, so if you're familiar with chakras as energetic centers over the body and this is a language that comes from it's a sanskrit language and it comes from india but this notion of energetic patterns is around the world Mm -hmm. and that each energetic pattern because remember i talked about the um the dna spiral as sort of that jacob's ladder that we climb and descend and so that this energy that overlays our body as the tree is the ladder another representation of it and that as we develop consciousness, so we actually elevate and move up these energy centers. So I remember reading this one book that talked about like, and you see this happen in human development, like mm-hmm. with children, for instance. So even if you were to look at like Erickson's model of psychosocial development, right? And those mm-hmm. stages, they would pretty much roughly overlap with each chakra. When the child is in this first state, they're in the root chakra development. It's all about food, water, basic survival. You can even think about it as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Exactly. So the hierarchy of needs absolutely overlaps on this as well. And then the next level from, you know, basic Maslow hierarchy survival, then the next is relation how you relate to those around you. Then the next portion is individuation, who you are as an individual. Now, the individual goes through those developments, but as a human collective, we are going through these stages of development. And I find that when we come to this concept of citation and who's first, I feel like we're kind of trapped in that like three-year-old psychosocial developmental stage where we're, we're just starting to get to that place of individuation but we haven't matured yet in it. So everything we get our hands on, mine, mm. mine. That's, a, that's very much like a three-year-old toddler, a very particular point in one's development where that word is the word, mine. And the way in which we observe that, not just on a child's development, but on a, a larger social development and how that plays into things like citation. Mm. And that there's even this, you know, a desire for it to claim this thing why because there's some power it's going to give me what is it going to give you it's going to make me stand out from everybody else 
So it, it makes sense in terms of like the stage of individuation, how people are fighting to figure out who they are. Mm. But again, that's a process that's part of a larger process that one gets facilitated and guided through as part of, you know, formal kind of development. Um, and so I think that the whole citation thing that you're naming is another representation of that arrested development under colonialism, where you haven't, we haven't tapped into the heart level of understanding everything is one, mm -hmm. and we haven't tapped into the third chakra understanding that as above, so below, as within, as without is all one, right? We, we haven't gotten there yet. We're still stuck in that solar plexus. Ooh, how do I make myself individual? Mm. So again, it, it all kind of loops back. I think that there are ways <clears throat> for us to evolve beyond these limited concepts of what actually makes us worthwhile mm -hmm. um, and where we get our value from, yeah. if that makes sense. So I really think, yeah, so while I think it's kind of silly to fight over who thought of what first, there's also, again, under the advent of colonialism, the way in which power has been warped or adulterated, that now it forces us to have conversation about how to hold and share culture and thoughts and ideas, um, especially when the sharing and generation of thoughts and ideas is manipulated under colonialism right so it that's where things get like super messy mm. yeah. um and i think a true demonstration of that messiness as well has got to do with african americans trying to find their roots um wherever is not in america and then the relationship to I guess what I'll term them the rooted right now, which is the folks who are, are in their in their place of being indigenous, um, have that interesting battle of like, are they coming to appropriate the culture? Or are they coming to appreciate that they're part of like that culture? And I think it's that distrust of the system of colonialism that's now funneled all the way down into the distrust of how people engage with each other's cultures and how we then form this right one plus one is three how we then form this different level of culture because i think if we do think of it in a in the in the micro and a macro scale we can even see that um we are as a people, as humans, developing this other culture, like me being, you know, Tswana, being South African, being black, then living in South Africa my whole life, then being in Vancouver, which is a place of ugh, dismal stuff. Um, and then now I'm adapting and adopting new cultures, also new ways to relate to my culture, which in itself is a culture as well. And I'm fascinated, as you can tell, by the processes by which we're able to link the things that happen on a micro scale and a macro scale, and then the reverse as well. Um, but also what cool people think about those. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is really it. Um, so the one last thing that I usually do is ask you if you were to have or give one piece of advice to yourself listening to this at another point, what would that piece of advice be? So I'm going to say like to my younger self, okay. like 
Um, and I would go to like when I was like maybe my first or second year of university, I would talk to that version of me. So like 20 year old version, <laughs> 20 year old me. Um, and I think that there's so much I would want to say. I feel like the most important thing I would really focus on is, is this identity piece. I would tell myself like, literally just, yeah, yeah I just, <laughs> I want to give myself all the gems. But the thing is, is that like my ancestors hooked me up so well at that time in my life with so much communication. And I think that the one extra thing that I could have given myself was self-belief. Because my ancestors are believing in me. They were like, had always are around me and were so around me at that time in my life in a particular way. Um, they were clearly trying to facilitate my confidence considering that, you know, I had absolutely none uh, under white supremacy, and I still navigate that as part of uh, fragmented identity under white supremacy. But I think that that would be it. It would be self-belief. And also, like, I, I think I give myself also some very strategic messaging around what to integrate from the powerful and strong messages of my mother and my grandmother because they were so powerfully influential for me and they taught me so much skill that shines through me now every time I speak or open my mouth and I'm so thankful for it but there was also so much trauma that was coming out um, they were acting so much out of their own trauma and so I would t also tell myself to not only have self-belief but to to be mindful that you know traumas in my family in this particular way and that the way in which it's coming at me and how it would harm me to just protect myself, to be more equipped to, to better protect myself, to mm. hear the wisdom of both my mother and my grandmother, but to not carry their trauma with me. Mm. Mm. Which is a tough, yeah. yeah, which is a tough thing to do because it, 22, what, is it, what is it called? Hindsight is something. Oh man, why are both of these slipping my mind? 2020 <laughs> is the best teacher or something like that. Um, and that's and that's and that's a good place to wrap the conversation up. Um, um, wow, you oh man, that just brought up so many things. I'm like, let's go for another hour. Um, <laughs> but we can always have you back again. Um, yeah. And a note that I usually end on is uh, how can people get uh, connected to you if connecting is something that you are hoping for or how can they um, I um, yeah how can they yeah how can they connect to you yeah absolutely well since I'm very much understanding that connection is life um, I do value connection but very particular kinds as I've grown older I've become better at my boundaries and identifying what I need. Um, people can find me on Instagram. I'm temple.alchemy, uh, hence all my lovely discussions about alchemy. It's the, the bread and butter of, of my work. Um, and also email is a great way to, to contact me. Anaya, A-N-A-Y-A dot A dot B-A-N-I at gmail.com. Um, I'll send that off to you so you can share it with 
your listeners as well if they want to connect with me. But yeah, um, I do a lot of tarot work and a lot of anti-racism facilitation and work around food justice. So folks can contact me around any of those things. They're all deeply interrelated. Mm-hmm. Yes, folks. Anai is awesome. Yes, you can stop shouting <laughs> it or bottling it in and trying to tell your neighbor next door. We get it. She's amazing. She truly is uh, an absolute gem. And I'm looking forward to uh, being in relation with you and, you know, being in community and but also more importantly, being in communication with you, because for me, a big thing of processing, and that's why starting this podcast is something that I did, is I do that through conversation. And it's just easier for me to take out my processes out of this vacuum of a mind and put them out there so I can actually analyze them and feel through them. So thank you for answering all of my questions, but also for bringing all of these new personal self-realizations and revolutions. And I will continue to embark on my process of alchemy. Um, Awesome, thank you. Thank you, it's been such a pleasure to be here. So I also wanted to say thank you for your skill um, and for your craft, because part of my nervousness this morning was calmed when I reminded myself that I was exactly where I needed to be and I was in the hands of a skilled interviewer. So thank you so much for making this process so fluid and and welcoming and healing. Thank you. What a conversation. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Wowie. I am blown away. Wow. Let me know what your thoughts are. If you have any feedback, I will be posting Anaya's bio as well as some contact information so you can get in touch with her um, and you'll be able to, you know, figure out a little bit more what alchemy is like, what it's about. Anaya is currently offering some really, really, really great gifts to us, to me personally as well. And... I'm hoping with her capacity that she'll have time to expand that and, you know, open this magical world up to everyone else as well. If you want to get to know a little bit more about scarcity mentality, how you can work through it, some of the tips and techniques that I offer will be on our Instagram platform under the, so that's T-H-E-E underscore bees underscore wax, the, the beeswax. And we're also on YouTube, and that's where you can find some additional content that I post um, based on whatever comes to me and my soul and my mind and my body and ways to have fun. And I hope that you are, you know, learning how to play a little bit more in your life. You're learning how to give grace to yourself a little bit more. And you're learning how to invite compassion into your day-to-day and enjoy the rest of your day everyone i'll see you on the next episode sitting with my ancestors sitting with my ancestors sitting with my eh, eh. Let it go. sitting with my eh, eh. Let it go.